Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Remix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Dom Morley, and if you're not familiar with Dom, Dom is a British engineer and producer who, in 2008, won the Record of the Year Grammy Award for Amy Winehouse's Back to Black album. And in addition to working with Amy Winehouse, he's worked with a ton of other great artists, including Sting, Adele, Kate Walsh, The Police, Jeff Beck, and a whole bunch more. And in today's conversation, we have a great chat about vocal mixing and how to get vocals to stand out in a mix. And Dom does a great job in this interview of outlining his process of how he starts the mix to make sure that the music wraps around the vocal and that the vocal is the focal point of the mix, but everything else seems to just work around it and give the vocal its own space so that the vocal has the listener's attention throughout the track. So if you struggle to get your vocals to sound clear in your mix, I think you're going to find a lot of great value from this episode here today. So without further ado, let's just jump right into this episode. Don Morley, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, all good. Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background and all the cool things that you're up to these days, can you give us that story? Uh, okay. So this, I guess the headline is... Um... Grammy-winning uh, engineer-producer, you have to get that bit in. It sort of becomes part of your name <laughs> after you've got one because everyone introduces you with that at the beginning. Um, and I have worked with artists like uh, Amy Winehouse, which is where I won the Grammy for, um, and also Adele, Sting. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I always find this really difficult. If you go to donmorley.com, I've got it on the website and it says everything. Um, latest news, I, I do a lot of work with a, a jazz trumpeter called Ibrahim Malouf, who um, is a, a Parisian but born in the Lebanon. And he does very interesting stuff, got really interesting, uh, I think it's a four-valve trumpet. There's something quite different about what he does. Um, and he did an album with a woman called Angelique Kidjo just recently, who's a massive kind of world music singer. And... That's just been the album. I mixed it for them at the beginning of the year, and it's just been nominated for a Grammy for Best uh, World Music Album. So Amazing. we were all uh, big fingers crossed for that to to come off because um, he she's got loads. She's got five Grammys. She doesn't need any more. But Ibrahim definitely deserves <laughs> one because he's amazing. So yeah, I'm yeah. hoping that comes off. That's amazing. And then, yeah, hopefully you can call yourself multiple Grammy winning. Engineer. Yeah, I get to put the word multiple at the front of my name then. <laughs> amazing. Well, how did you get into music and ultimately into production? Uh, into music, actually, there's an album called um, Surfer Rosa by Pixies, which was the album that got me into into being in a band. Um, and it's sort of, it's an incredible record if you don't know it. It's, it sounds so raw and yet so... So in, just amazing. It was a band at their height, their powers, and and Steve Albini did a great job on producing it. And and actually, I have the uh, I have a little thing of the album cover that sits on top of my speakers to remind me I'm supposed to be doing what that did to me. You know, and, um, it's the stuff that I work on. I want to be making people feel like that made me feel. So um, that's what got me into being in a band. And then and then this, uh, this was about 14 at that point. Um, and then um, I kind of wanted to record us in our, our attempts at making making music. And so this was like, uh, I think early 90s. So I, I bought a, uh, a Porter Studio, which is like a cassette multi-track 
four track thing. Um, so I bought that and, and, and had a lot of fun. So then I kind of upgraded that to an eight track reel to reel and, and bought a, it was an Atari ST was the cutting edge of, of computer audio. Sorry, not computer audio. Cause there was no audio MIDI sequencing, <laughs> um, and, and set up a little bedroom studio, uh, a la 1993 or whatever it was. Um, and, and I just loved doing that. I realized I didn't really, I wasn't really that into being in a band. It was kind of fun, but not, not my thing, but I loved playing with sound and trying to get things sound great. So, um, so then when it came to, um, needing to work and being of that age, I, um, I went knocking on doors of studios and saying, I work for nothing. I make good tea thinking that this is my <laughs> surefire way of getting a gig. The right pitch, right? <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. Well, it, it eventually worked. Uh, I spent days walking around London looking at all these studios and, and trying to get in and, and offering my services for nothing, and they weren't interested. So then I went to Birmingham, which is like the be- next biggest city in the UK, and uh, somebody there said, yeah, all right, see you Monday. Um, so then I, I, I worked there, like work experience, just for nothing, for, for um, as long... I, I I think I gave myself about a three month or four month limit, and then I ran out of cash, so I'd have to go and do something paid. But I, fortunately, within that period, there was a studio also in Birmingham that was owned by the band UB40, and they were looking for a new, like new assistant engineer, um, stroke runner kind of thing. Um, and the guy that ran that studio, the engineer there, knew the producer that I was kind of helping out in this studio where I was, so I got recommended for the gig, and that was like my first proper job um in studios and then uh, i was there for about two and a half years and it was great time it was a smallish studio like two rooms uh, but one one of them had an ssl in it you know it was it was small but decent um but it was enough to learn loads and when you're in a small studio not in like the hyper center of like london new york la kind of nashville world um you get to do a lot more a lot earlier so i was like engineering stuff after about six six months of 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 just turning up and not really knowing what I was doing. And to be fair, I don't think I really knew what I was doing on those first engineering sessions. I mean, I got <laughs> signal to tape, but I think it sounded awful. But they knew what they are doing. The clients knew. You got the new guy. It's cheap, blah, blah, blah. Um, so anyway, uh, I was there for a couple of years, and then I moved down to London and managed to get a job at a studio called Metropolis, which is a really big one. It's like that had, when I joined, that had three SSLs and even a Focusrite desk, five studios, loads of mastering rooms. So that was cool, um, and I was there for quite a few years. Um, you know, started at the bottom again, worked my way up, but obviously smaller fish, bigger pool, um, and then went freelance from there, I think 12, 14 years ago, something like that. So I've been freelance for a little while, um, and 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 I shared a studio with a mate. Um, we we rented one of the rooms that Metropolis has, so I was still in the building, and um, and but client rather than employee. Um, and then, and then I moved out and I've been out here in Oxfordshire for about six or seven years now. This is like a, a brick outbuilding behind a massive house, like a stately home kind of massive house. Um, and so there's nothing around, which saves me a fortune on, on soundproofing. I don't need to soundproof because there's nothing to soundproof <laughs> against. Occasionally a horse walks past. That's it. That's the only noise Amazing. I have. I love it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that's me kind of a potted history of me up to now. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always impressive to me when I hear people say that, you know, you, you got an internship and, you know, you managed to like work your way into a position, you know, basically within months, you said, um, cause I find that very interesting, right? You know, like you always hear about the stories of people that are like, you know, I, it was a year or two or whatever, but to get mm. into, to get in that quickly is, is pretty impressive. Um, it was, it was as much luck though, really in that there was only one, I think there were two studios in Birmingham that actually had assistant engineer positions. 
And it just so happened that one of them came up while I was in town looking for a gig and sort of impressing people that I was with. Therefore, I got the recommendation over somebody else. So gotcha. bit of luck, bit of bit of I was I tell students I, I I'm also a professor at um Leeds Conservatoire and I tell students that half the job is putting yourself in a position to score. It's like that kind of uh, the the soccer analogy is like you're you know the 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 main guy that scores all the goals he might only be on the ball oh in the middle of the world cup this is a perfect timing for this analogy <laughs> the main goal scorer he might be only on the ball for 2 minutes out of 90 but the other 88 he's running around getting himself in a position to score so that when a good ball does finally come in he gets it in the net and and most of the balls that come in are pointless you know they end up the net the goalkeeper's on the game or or you know it's not quite lands properly for you and so on. But as long as you're always getting yourself in a position to score, when everything else lines up, you do your bit and you score. And 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 I've always found work to be like that. As long as you're always doing your very best at your bit, then then when everything else lines up, it's going to be, you know, it's going to do what it needs to do and it's going to do well and you won't be the guy that meant it didn't happen. You know what I mean? But it means that when the opportunities swing your way, then you, uh, you you're able to take full advantage of them. I love that. Yeah, that, that's so true. Because I, I do think that you know, there are a lot of studios that still do the the free intern thing. And, you know, it can be for a lot of people, it's almost intimidating to to even apply for these jobs. Like they they, they know that they mm. want to get into these studios, but it's kind of like you said, like, you know, I only have so much money to last so long. Mm. So, yeah. you know, it's like that that there's like a, a kind of a bit of preparation that goes into it of like, you know, how do I maximize this internship without being overly pushy or, you know, yeah. You know, like, how do you get the most out of it? So um, as far as, like, that analogy that you said there, I, I I love that analogy. I think it's very true. But what kind of things would you recommend people do to put themselves in that position to to score? Like, you know, what? how, how does someone stand out so that they can be ready for those opportunities? Okay, I, th- I think there's two things. One is, I think fairly obvious, is just to be as helpful as, and as friendly as, as you can be because – I had a great quote that was it was about um it was about Hollywood, but it, it applies everywhere. It was people hire the best person for the job that they like working with. And that last qualifier is really, really important. That's so a big one. You've got to be somebody that 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 um a client or whoever it is that you hope to employ you wants to spend time in the room with because they're gonna to have to. And if you're if that isn't the case with you, then then they're gonna pick somebody else who is Decent at it, maybe not as good as you, but pleasant to hang around with for 12 hours. So make sure you're being the friendly, helpful person as as good as you can be. But the other thing is, and it was some advice I got very early on when I, when I was assisting, was was to be thorough. As And the idea being that there aren't many transferable skills between an assistant engineer and an engineer. You know, you're setting up mics and stuff as an assistant and you're, you're running the tea and coffee and, you know, you're just being kind of generally helpful and plugging stuff in. Whereas an engineer is tasked to get the right sounds and that is a different gig. Um, and equally, engineer to producer, you know, there's a huge step between the guy who's got to get the right sounds and the guy who's got to draw the right performance out of an artist and all that sort of stuff. So, so um, in order to move up, you need to display, I think, a a real ability to be thorough at whatever task you're given so that whatever task even if it's boring or demeaning well not demeaning okay let's skip that one boring or or you think it's below you or or whatever it is if it's the task you've been given then you do your absolute best at it so that the people that know you're ambitious then know that when they give you the next thing that might be a bit tricky you're going to do it to absolutely the best of your ability because that's what you always do um, I made sure when I was at Metropolis that even when I was just making tea and coffee, 
I did it really well. I learned how to use the coffee machine really well. I was known for making the best hot chocolate in the building. And I have no interest in making good hot chocolate, and I never have. <laughs> but I was known to be good at stuff. Give me a job and I'll do it well. You know, that was what I wanted to be known as. And uh, and then that could pass on to give him a job of recording a vocal, give him a job of recording a drum kit, give him a job of mixing something, and you know, and and I would do it well. So that's uh, those are the two things I think being being the friendly, uh, helpful person as much as you can, but also being incredibly thorough about whatever task you've been given. Hundred percent, yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of funny because it reminded me of like one of my first internships that I had. You know, obviously, coffee is a big thing at a studio, and you have to you have to know how to make good coffee. And I I was not a coffee drinker, so like I didn't know <laughs> if I was making it right or not. You know, but I was always asking like everyone like, "How's your coffee?" You know, what, yeah, what, do you need it stronger, lighter, whatever? You know, I was always trying yeah, to like yeah. gauge like what is it that people want, and like how do I like you know alter the recipe and stuff just to, to just to get it perfect. You know, um, yeah, yeah, but but it's like. Yeah, I, I might. Not, I'm not going to become a coffee drinker just to work in a studio, but I, you know, it's like you said, like you have to be meticulous with it. You have to you have to pay attention to those details and see what people want, right? And, and also things like making a note if you're working with somebody of what they like, so that this was always the golden hit. Is like they'd come back six months later and you'd go, still milk and two sugars, yeah, yeah, and you'd remember their coffee, you know, and they and then they just feel like so looked after. They go, oh, this guy's great. I want this guy. This guy's brilliant, you know. Just little things like that that you can do to make. Make somebody feel you know you know like you're you're you really care about them and their staff and their work and their and their happiness. Then uh, yeah, they you, they want you to be the guy in the room. It's so true. Like that. Th- I mean, that's a small detail that is really important to people. Like if if you were to just take a quick note of like how someone takes their coffee and then make sure that when they come next time they've got they've got it all ready to go the way they want it. You know, like it's a small detail, but it. And some people listening to this might be like, what's this have to do with audio? But it's it's like, it's customer service. You know what I mean? And and that's, yeah, that's really what it comes down to. And if you're treating people the way they want to be treated and you're you're making them feel actually special because you you pay attention to their order and you want them to be satisfied and, you know, have that great experience, and then they're going to keep coming back and they're going to remember you as that person who paid attention yeah. to those details. And, and if you want a gig in this, in this world, then not only you've got to be good about the audio bit, but you've got to be good about the business bit as well. You've got to be able to do the business part of it. Otherwise... You know, and if you're a hobbyist, then that's absolutely great, and that, there's no uh, there's no issues with that at all. And then you don't have to worry about it; just to worry about the audio. But if you want a gig, then you got to get both sides nailed. Absolutely, love that. So you had mentioned that you were you kind of just started off by like learning recording, and you know you got your your porta studio and all that. And you know, were you just teaching yourself at that point? Like, how how did you ultimately learn the engineering side of it? Was it just trial and error? And then once you got in the studio, you kind of watch other people. Yeah, it was it was trial and error, and um, you know I'd get magazines. That's all there was in those days. You know, it was pre-internet, so there, was, there wasn't really much, you know, other opportunity to learn. Um, so I'd do what I could from magazines, and I'd, I'd you'd experiment with a lot of stuff. And then it was actually when I first started uh, a little bit on that work experience, um, although I wasn't really sort of touching anything. I was just trying to, you know, be a helpful guy in the room. Um, but then when I when I started actually working in a studio, it was it was a really quick learning curve, and they were throwing stuff at me to get me to to learn things. And there was a guy there called Mike Exeter who was the chief engineer, and I'm still friends with. And he was really helpful. And you know, it was he was chief engineer. It was his job to teach me, but he didn't have to put that much effort in, and he did. Um, and and so I was amazed actually at how quickly I did learn it. And there's really something to be said, which. You know, these days it's harder to get gigs in studios because there were fewer of them. But but there were more college courses, which there weren't when I started. That was a really difficult option trying to get on a college course about about um, audio education. 
Um, but the idea of just being immersed in something where everyone you're talking to is talking about that too and everything, you know, your whole life for a period of time is about one subject um, is a hugely um, powerful education tool to just be immersed in in one thing. So um, that that meant I, I learned very quickly, but it was learning on the job. You know, it was it was while I was there and, and watching other people and asking questions of, of the chief engineer who I could, not the clients, because they didn't want to be answering questions, but I, I could of the chief engineer. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's, it's about surrounding yourself with the right people, right? When you're around people who are motivating you and, and you know, they, they have things that you can learn from, like you're going to, you're going to absorb it very quickly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that definitely helps yeah. you propel into it. That's awesome. Um, so, so yeah, eventually you got into the production side of things and engine, you know, recording bands and mixing them. I'd love to talk a little bit about the production side for yourself. Um, when you go into producing an album, what's your normal approach when it comes to production? Like how involved do you like to get? Cause I, I know some people are all about like, they, they want to get into the songwriting elements. Some people are like, that's not really my thing as a producer. So what do you view the role of a producer as? Uh, well, it's, it's whatever's required, really. I mean, there, there are, there's such a range now. Like, like, like old school, like when I started out, um, I'm very old now. <laughs> <laughs> when I started out, it, it was the 90s, or late 90s when I started working in studios. And, and even then it was still the case where it's like everything was kind of, Demos were done, you know. There were the song was written, and and there was a good idea of what it was going to be, and then the producer got involved and shaped it from there. And there was a bit more of the kind of what they call the fifth band member kind of idea, you know, with, with particularly with Indian rock, um, where you were sort of directing and shaping and suggesting and stuff like that, but you were you know essentially trying to get uh, the best out of the guys in the room, you know, and get their best version of everything. Uh, which I still, you know, which is still a, a, a very valid role for a producer if that's what the band requires, you know, if it's that sort of band that just needs help realizing their ideas, then then really that's what you want to do. And as much as possible, be sort of as invisible as possible, you know, um, and, and, and draw out the band's ideas rather than, you know, imprint your own on them. Um, but then you can go all the way over to the to the idea that the producer is the guy that brings the backing track you know, brings the beat and, and, and then somebody just sings on top of it. And that's, that's their role as the artist and the producer does everything else. Um, and, and anything in between. So I, I sort of, you know, I started out with, um, doing more kind of band stuff and it being fifth member kind of role, um, which I still do if that's the right thing for the person that I'm working with or the band that I'm working with. But then I'll also do stuff where, um, I've got a so when I do my, some more sort of poppy things, um, it will I'll often have like um, a lead vocal and a, and a chord chart or or something like that, and then and then a, we'll talk about influences and you know who do you want to sound like, what sort of instrumentation we're looking for, that sort of thing. Do we want to get string players in? Do we want a guitarist? Because I don't play guitar, um, and then and then I I build a track from there. Drum live drums or program them, and you know I'll produce a drummer. Uh, to the track whether the artist can turn up or not that's fine and I'll build the whole backing track and then they'll sing over the top so I'm I'm you know I'm happy to do whatever's required to get to get the right album really um and and I think that's kind of where the gig is these days to be honest I think you'd struggle to say you know I can't do either I can't leave other people to play their instruments um or you know I can't play anything or do anything I can just tell you whether you've got it right or not. Um, 
I think uh, the way the future is going, you need to be able to kind of cover all aspects. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, I, I really do think that the role of the producer has changed significantly and people's expectations of what a producer is have changed mm-hmm. as well, right? Um, you know, I remember like, yeah, one of my early mentors, he he always defined like the producer is like the accounting guy, you know? Like, it was like, right. he was the guy who he, he would come to the sessions, make sure that everyone was getting paid and like, you know, yeah. make sure that they got the great performances and all that. But that was part of it that now we don't talk about, you know, as, as a yeah, producer role. True. I, I was first told when I asked about it, it was the a cross between in the film world, a cross between the director and the producer of a film. Is the in terms of the director, you've got to you know deliver the vision and have an idea of where the whole thing's got to go, and and you've got to pull in the right people at the right time, and you've got to make sure everybody's get paid like the producer in a film does, and you know, and it's that sort of crossover, which is less and less the case these days. I think mm-hmm. the the produ- the film producer role of it is less and less. The case. Of course, but I, but I think you're right though. It's like there are there are still like. A few different scenarios for a producer that an artist would need these days, right? And sometimes it is just like having that fifth member of the band to say like, you know, let's change around the arrangement a little bit here and there. And then there's mm-hmm. the people that, like you said, will come to you with just a skeleton of a vocal and maybe some chords and are like, mm-hmm. turn it into a song. And and, and that requires a, a different skill set than the other one, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. because you really do have to improve your songwriting chops because you know you you know at that point you're you're writing music you're not just you know hitting record and trying to get the best takes right yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. you got to be able to kind of yeah at least to some extent or or be able to get the right people in absolutely you know? so then in your opinion what ultimately makes a great song like when you're producing a song how do you know that it sounds good and that it's it's in the the best shape it can be oh <laughs> ooh that's a tough one <laughs> i have question. no idea that's not something i've ever <laughs> That's something I've ever sort of verbalized. Um, so I have to process kind of what I think that would be. Um, I guess, I don't know. It's it sort of, if it feels like it's it's moving in the way that it's supposed to, then I feel like we're probably, we probably got it. It's like, I guess you've got the vocal. Let's assume it's a song, right? So you've got the vocal and that's and that's number one. That's the most important thing. And then you know how emotionally that's moving, you know, guided by the lyrics and maybe by the performance that the singer's done as you know how it's building and falling and, and where the where the light and shade hopefully needs to be. Um, and then I guess the question is, is, has that been delivered by what you've put on there? You know, is that is it the right sort of, are the, are the tones that you're using and the instrument instrumentation that you've used, is that giving you the right feel, the right emotion um, to back up what the singer's doing? Um, and if that's the case, then I think that's cool. I think that's that's you've done what you needed to do. But if there are holes or if something doesn't feel like either feels like it's lacking or if it's pushing it in the wrong direction emotionally, then you've still got work to do. So you've got to change that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you're ultimately just trying to you're trying to create that connection with the between the audience and the, the song. And so the emotion is the important part that you're trying to. It, it, that is the connector, right? It is like yeah. the, the, the movement of the song and the feeling of the song. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so then what would you say is like a common mistake that you see a lot of artists making before they enter the studio and, you know, with, with their arrangements and that kind of stuff? I think, I think that it's a, it's a mistake to think, I don't get this this much anymore. I have got it quite a few times in the past to say, I don't know what I want, but I'll know when I hear it. That's the most expensive phrase 
I've ever heard. Because <laughs> that means I like we, have said to expensive. Try, <laughs> we have to try everything until you get to what you want. So what I, I maybe the reason why I don't hear that anymore because I have a plan for it. And what I do is I said, before we start, I ask for a Spotify or whatever playlist of up to sort of a dozen tracks of these need to be songs that you want to sit amongst, you know, that your, your, your track or your album could, could be on a playlist with these songs and they would work like that. And then what that means is we know roughly what the instrumentation needs to be, what the feel of the album's going to be, how, how loud the vocal needs to be in the mix or what kind of reverbs. There's often a lot of those cues will come when an artist has to make those sort of decisions. And, and for some, it's quite simple because that's the way they've planned their project is by thinking, what do I need to sound like? Who else am I going to sound like? So it's like, oh, yeah, okay, these three albums are the ones that I think. And for some, they've never thought of it before, and it's quite a challenge. But that challenge is much easier done at home with your finger on the forward button of a streaming service than in a studio with musicians that are being paid and the studios being paid trying to work out what you're supposed to be sounding like because that is there's no need to do it in a studio. You can work that out on your own at home, and that will save you an enormous amount of time and money. So I'd say that's probably the biggest mistake is somebody that hasn't had that, gone through that process of what do I want this project to sound like? Um, because then all you've got to do is everyone's got to get in and deliver that. And that's um, much more straightforward than, and there's still plenty of scope for experimentation within that. Once, you know, a playlist of 12 songs doesn't define you at all. It just gives everybody signposts. And and when you get stuck, like if I'm stuck on a production and I'm, I've put a few things down. I'm like, I don't know what else to put on this, but it's not done yet. I'll listen to the playlist, and then there'll be three things that will come into my head. I go, oh, it's something a bit like, but not quite. But if I did that on the Wurlitzer instead of a string part, that might be quite cool, you know. And it just it feeds into those ideas, which if you don't have those signposts, you've just got – it can be forever trying to narrow something down to make it sounds like a coherent project. Of course. Yeah. I think that that's a really good point to bring up because yeah, you need to have that vision for your tracks, you know, not just from a, from a songwriting perspective, but also that, that having that clear vision really dictates the path you follow with every element of the production process, whether it's, you know, the, the instruments that you record because you want to get a similar sound uh, or like the arrangements to, you know, make it sound as wide as the songs you want them to sound like um, even from a mixing perspective too, it's going to help dictate you know how loud the vocal should be versus the guitar and that kind of stuff so it really does make a lot of sense to come up with this vision of what your song should sound like before you start because otherwise you're just you know trying to put everything at the throw everything at the wall and see what sticks and and that's not really a way to ultimately find the sound that you wanted you know it's it's kind of and and it's not a creative process that as well it's just tedious that people get frustrated and and confused and and then annoyed and and it just it doesn't lend to the, the 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 barriers of these songs are what we want to be like it feeds the creativity because it just gives you some kind of you know the the, the having too many options is is a uh, is a killer of creativity but also it's it's a process for deciding what sort of artist you are as well you know that you should have an idea of who you are you know that shouldn't be the producer's decision to decide what sort of artist you are, you should be able to know for your, for your own authenticity is to know what sort of artist you are. And and for your first album, that's important to, to get that established and go, I am this kind of artist, let's make a record. And then for subsequent albums, it's like, I was this on my last album and I am now moving in this direction because this is how I've changed as a person or how we've changed as a band. 
you know, and, and now we're doing, you know, we're referencing that stuff that we did last time around, but we're now listening to this and we want to be in this territory too. And all that stuff is really, I, I don't understand anyone that leaves that to the producer to make that decision. <laughs> I think that's mad. This is you. This is your art. Why are you getting somebody to tell you what you should sound like? It's supposed to be the other way around. Yeah. You tell them how you want to sound and they'll make it happen. Of course. And I also think that there's a lot of artists too that they just are afraid to admit that they sound alike to someone else. You know, like there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that are just like, Oh, I'm so unique. Like, I I don't know what it sounds, what my music sounds like. And then it's like, come on, like you're not, you're not that special of a snowflake. Yeah. Yeah. You you sound like this person or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, by having that, that, that idea of what you want it to be, then yeah, it just makes the process smoother for everyone. And you can trans, you can, you know, have those goalposts to know when you're, when you're in the right area and you know, you're, you're on track and, and yeah. um, you know, from your production, your producer will understand what you want. Your mixing engineer will understand what you want. It, it really exactly. does make sense to, to do that. So I love that exercise of just getting someone to make a playlist for that. Cause yeah, there's, you'll always find something that at least inspires you or that you, yeah, exactly. you, know, you want it to sound yeah. similar to. Yeah. Yeah. So then what about um, when it comes to mixing then like, are you using reference tracks for your mixes as well? Like, do you, do you frequently listen to that kind of stuff too? Exactly the same. Well, you know, so, so, and what I do as well, I do say is like, um, send me a bunch of tracks that you want this to sound like, you know, um, and and also tell me why each track's on there. Just a, a sentence as to why that track's on there. And if it's just for the vibe, then that's fine. You know, that's a, a good enough explanation. And, and I do that because one time uh, before I used to do that little qualifying question, um, there was uh, a track that was in the playlist that I'd been sent, and it had this, uh, I think it was like this really reverby drum sound that I thought, oh, that sounds really cool, right? And that's obviously, you know, what they're into. So so I did that, and it turned out that track was on there because they liked the vocal reverb and they hated the drum sound. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I should know this before I start. So, yeah, and, and you normally if they say, if you get things like it's just the vibe, you know, if you get three of those, they kind of normally sound sort of together and it's probably something like a vocal reverb or something that's the same. And it's just, you know, the artist isn't able to pick that out of the mix, which isn't their job, so it's fine. Um, but they haven't been able to identify that, which is a mix engineer, you can go, okay, I can hear the similarity and I know what they've done, you know, they've got this big hall on everything. So, you know, those sort of things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That that, that really does help to... Um find the thing that people actually want, you know, as opposed yeah. to, again, just leaving it up to the producer to figure out what's the coolest element of this reference track they gave me. Yeah. Cause back, back in the old days when, when everyone you had to work on analog in studios, um, the, the artists would be with you. So you could go this kind of reverb, are you digging this? And then they could say yes or no. And the decision's made and you know, you're getting what they want. Whereas when you've got a mix on your own and then just send it to them, there's a thousand creative decisions you make in the process of the mix. And if, you know, I'm not going to check with them on every one because that would just be tedious for them. So um, if I can get signposts from from a few sort of pl- uh, few tracks on a playlist as this is the sort of stuff we like, then I go, okay, I'll try and get as much of the stuff that you like into this mix. And then hopefully I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it pretty close to where you want it to be. For sure. So that sounds like it's one of the first things that you would typically do before you start a mix, just to get those those goalposts. And so then, what's your mindset going into a mix? Like, how do you typically start? Do you have a similar process that you follow with every mix? What's that look like? Um, kind of, yeah. I mean, I'll also, if if I can, I can check. I'll check their their last rough mix. You know, so you've got an idea of, you know, whether this is a piano led track or guitar led track or you know whatever those sort of little balance things, which are probably going to reveal themselves in in the last rough mix I did. Um, and then, uh, and then I actually start by making sure I know. Um, I have this thing about the presence 
of a vocal of the lead vocal, um, which generally is somewhere between sort of two and a half, to two two and three and a half k. Um, most voices will have like a little bit of there'll be a point where they're quite present. Um, so I do a little sort of sweep around with an EQ um, around that point on a boost and just see if there's a point where it feels like they've stepped forward a bit. And then it's like, that's that's going to be the important frequency for that voice because that's where their, their presence is. Um, and then I make a note of it and then sort of close the lead vocal off and start with the drums. But every instrument will have a dip at that frequency um, with the idea being that I can build the mix up quite nicely and know the vocal is already going to be sitting in there to an extent because the whole has already been made. Um, with the vocal being the most important thing, whatever the most important frequency is for the vocal, nothing else gets to be there. Like, it's always going to win that battle. If there's a battle at that point, say it's 2.5K, if there's a battle at 2.5K, the vocal wins because that's the vocal and that's its spot. So, um, yeah, so so that's the sort of, that's always my first bit is trying to work out where the vocal needs to be. Um, and then And then I just, you know, kick see how that's working with the bass, then do the rest of the drums, and then bring the bass in and sort of finalize that with a kick and just sort of add things as I go along and in a kind of try and do it in kind of order like kick bass and then whatever is providing the rhythm in the instrument, like maybe rhythm guitar, acoustic guitar, piano, whatever it is that's providing the rhythm there so that you've got that kind of building up as a backing track and then building on that. And then finally the vocal, um, and then I put the backing vocals on around around the lead once the lead's in there and in the right place. So that's sort of the order that I do things in pretty much. That's cool. Yeah, I like that approach of like finding that key frequency range for the vocal. Um, you know, you said like two and a half to three and a half K or so. Like that, that, that is a range where there's a lot of information on a lot of different tracks there. Like, you know, you're going to get your stick definition and all that kind of stuff with the drums. So um, like, are you actually cutting in that frequency on like all the tracks or is it just like specific ones? That, okay. <laughs> I think. Unless like if it's a bass, that's a sub bass, then I don't need to because there's nothing there anyway. Uh, but yeah, snare's going to have a hole in it there. So are the guitars. You know, they're all going to have at least a two, three dB dip um, cue of about, you know, two to three uh, at, at that point where the vocal needs to be. Uh, because yeah, they're all important, but they're not as important as the vocal. Yeah. So th- they can have other space, you know. They're like also, like a, for example, a vocal doesn't sound, often I find vocals don't sound very nice in the kind of four and a half, five K area. That's quite hard. A voice, um, but the crack of a snare and and the the cut of an electric guitar sounds really good there. So they can have that bit. You know, the guitars can have the wide bit of that. Snare can have the bit in the middle. I'm going to dip the vocal there because you know it's sounding a bit hard anyway. So we can give that over to the snare because the vocal's got its main present bit there. You know, and so on. It's like that whole ballet of of EQ moving around to make space for things and, <laughs> as, as you add them and, and and try and find their their place where they're comfortable but yeah that, that that's yeah the vocals always got a win at that point it's 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 actually it's the point of the the, the where human hearing is most sensitive is that vocal area between about one and one and four k i think um so uh so that's why you've got to be so careful around there and, and, and put so much effort into that that little bit of mid-range is because that makes so much a difference to our hearing because we're so sensitive to that absolutely yeah a lot of people talk about you know how mixing you want to be mixing for the mid-range and getting making sure that that's the thing you master because you know, that's, that's the thing that you're going to hear on every set of speakers is that mid-range. And Well, that's why I think, so I've got NS10s, and this is my theory on why NS10s are popular, um, or, or not, for, for the same reason, is they give you loads of that kind of area. Like, they're quite pokey in that mid-range area, uh, which means they sound a bit horrible, you know, and they're quite tiring. 
But also, because they give you loads in that area, you're able to get into quite a lot of detail in getting those, you know, lead guitar, vocal, violin, snare, all that stuff working together really well because you've been given so much detail by the NS10s. And then when you pop them into some real speakers that actually sound okay, uh, the mid-range is, like, really sorted, really crystal clear because you've had had this kind of NS10 magnifying glass on the bit around the vocals. Um, but, you know... The, that's where they work for me. Like other people just hate them. So that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely have a love hate relationship with them. Like I, I find that like my ears just get tired after listening to music on mm-hmm. a sentence, but, but I do understand why people love them. Um, you know, and, and for me, I've just taken the approach of like, I have a, like a little Oratone speaker, you know, the little, little right. mix cubes. And like that, that to me is my mid range checker. Very know? similar deal to the yeah. NS10s. Yeah. yeah but I, you have to always be paying attention to that mid range because, yeah, it is really important, and you know that's where you're going to get the vocal clarity and all that other stuff yeah. comes in that range. All the lead instruments are going to be there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's interesting that you start off with vocals and, and that you pocket everything like that because that was one of the things that really stood out to me when I listened to your mixes. Is that I found your vocals always seem to sit very clear in the mix, so it kind of makes sense that that's that's your approach there. Um, are there any other tips that you have for for getting vocals to sound really clear in a track? Hmm. Um. I don't know. Uh, that's that's kind that's kind of the thing that I do automatically. Um, I guess the only other thing that I do that I think kind of works quite well, which I don't know if everybody does with vocals. Maybe I might be saying something really obvious here, but I, I like to think in terms of scenes with a vocal in the effects. Um, so I'll have a bunch of different parts of the song. I'll have two different reverbs, two different delays, and they'll they'll be necessary for different parts of the song depending on how close or far I want the vocal to feel and how how affected, how wide, how narrow. So it might be a verse part, or maybe there's a middle eight where I want it to be really intimate and, and that to be quite a, quite a dramatic moment that it will pull it in. So then I'll lose everything or I'll just have a small room or something that's on there for a little bit of realism without it going too dry. And then the chorus will be the uh, will be the big hall scene or the large plate scene. So that will come in and out for the chorus. And then there'll be delays that I use to either add width and uh, and interest you know by having an obvious delay thing going on in between moments or or it might just be that delay is kind of a subtle stereo delay that is ends up almost sounding like a reverb you know it's like lots of repeats very fast and it's just doing uh, something slightly different to the reverb that that means a few words within a chorus get even bigger or a few words within a verse are thrown back a little bit and 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 there's just that constant kind of shift around the vocal of the space that the vocal's in which makes it kind of quite um quite interesting and keeps the interest of the uh, uh, throughout the mix because you're never quite sure what's what's going to be coming um but then in terms of clarity actually there's quite a, a little tip on clarity there is is with um with big reverbs like with the vocal you kind of still want the vocal to be normally you still want the vocal to be close to you even though it might be in a big reverb and the more reverb you add the further away the vocalist disappears into the back of the hall um but if you put a pre-delay on your reverb then it actually keeps the vocal kind of up the front with the hall being behind it um the sort of psychoacoustic thing of that being that it's still singer is still next to you in front of you and the time it's taking for the reverb to come back to you is suggesting that the size of the hall and the difference space between the vocalist and the and the and the back wall basically so um so use of a pre-delay means you can kind of get bigger reverbs without losing your singer and the more you add just the bigger the room gets behind them rather than the further back 
they travel in it. So that can be, if you've not used that before, that can be quite a nice little uh, maneuver to keep your vocal nice and clear while putting a load of space around it. For sure, that's a great tip. Yeah, I know a lot of people will talk about just, you know, whether you should even use reverb with vocals or if just if you can just get away with delay because sometimes delay will give you a cleaner sure. cleaner yeah. version of it, right? Where you it's, still have that it's depth. It's smaller. Yeah, it, it takes up less room, which is cool. So I, I kind of use a combination. Also, what can be quite useful I've, I've been doing lately is DSing the send to the reverb. So it's got a little bit less of the uh, of the sibilance in the send, which means I find I can use a bit more, use a brighter reverb and not, not be thrown by the essing. So no, I might have a DS on the vocal anyway, but then the the reverb channel will have a DS plugin and then the reverb plugin, so that it's um, you know a little bit less that's going to the verb. Gotcha. Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a cool approach. Because yeah, definitely. You know, sometimes you want that bright reverb, but if you've got tons of S's, then it gets pretty annoying it's pretty too quickly. Big. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it means you can keep the size, you know, without without it getting too too splashy. Of course, yeah. You'd mentioned that um, you like to think of your effects as scenes. Does do your effects like? only live in certain sections of the song or do you kind of blend them all together and just have like different balances between like a verse and a chorus? It's different balances, yeah. yeah. So so there may be two or three in the chorus that are all going and then only one in the verse and a couple in the pre-chorus and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, there's, it's not like there would be, um, it'll only be there and nothing else is allowed to be in that section. They'll, they'll It will grow and shift and drop as, as, the, as the song goes on. And the idea really being it's like... Um, there's, there's the novelty and repetition, you know, is how we enjoy music. And, and there's got to be something new, or rather you've got to be listening to the song and not know how it's going to finish. There's enough novelty that's going on through the song that you don't think, okay, I know the rest now. I know what's going on. Uh, you've got to always be thinking, well, there's always these little things that, you know, this will be a subconscious conversation, but there's always these little things that keep coming up that I wasn't expecting. And they don't need to be dramatic because there still needs to be the repetition that means you, you know, that's how humans attach themselves to music. Um, but but with the novelty, I, it means I can introduce some, this effect kind of process means I can introduce novelty and with the vocal channel as well. And it's just another little element that you can use to 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 bring that in and 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 make the track interesting and encourage people to listen to the end. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of blending things because, yeah, if you have completely different effects in different sections, and you know, it sometimes it can seem like too drastic of a shift between a verse and a chorus. So, you know, by at least having that blend, you can you, you're kind of familiar with that sound already. It, it's it's a little bit of a smoother transition for yeah, for it's things. The repetition novelty again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. Like I said, like vocals were one of the things that really stood out to me um, with with your productions um, and. Uh, one thing that I remember hearing in an interview you did, you, you mentioned that in particular, when more so when you're recording vocals, um, that you always prefer to work with the artists in the same room as you, as opposed to having them in a, a different room or in mm. a booth. And I'm curious to know, like, how how does that impact, uh, or why, why is that, first off? Uh, because I think it's quite, um, I kind of, as much as possible, try and take them on an emotional journey when they're singing, because that's, you know, that's, the crux of the performance is is them emoting whatever the lyric happens to be. So um, so it can be you know it can be a challenge, and I I will be pushing them to be more in the moment and more you know emoting whatever the lyric is requiring. And I find it easier to do that and to be with them on that journey if we're in the same room, and we can just take the headphones off or take an ear off and have a conversation. Whereas if you're doing it over a talkback button and they're in a room on their own, you're not, I just don't feel like we're doing it together. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm just 
dictating something to them and then they've got to try and work it out on their own. And and I just find it's, um, yeah, it's easier to get the intensity uh, of performance and, and essentially the intensity of relationship between me and the artist at that point of getting a vocal good um, and, and really getting the emotion out of it. Um, it's just easier if we're sat here looking at each other and chatting rather than separated by glass and, and wood and stone. Makes sense. Uh, um, yeah, that's, that's just how I was, I've always done it. So my studio here doesn't have a booth. I just have a, there's a mic stand in the corner and, and you, you sing there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of like uh, before we started recording, we were talking about having video on the Zoom call, and you mm. know, it's it's the same kind of idea. When you see someone's face to face, there's definitely a connection there, as opposed to just staring at a blank screen or whatever. Yeah, it's like there's some um, psychological thing where communication is like sixty percent body language and and thirty percent tone of voice, and then only ten percent the actual words that you say. So the amount that we that we get out of uh, these, you know, this this actually seeing people and, and stuff. I realize that's the reason why I don't like phone calls is because I'm not getting the body language bit, you know, so I feel like I'm not properly communicating and I much prefer video calls, which upsets everybody because I like, I'll, I'll video call people instead of phone calling them. <laughs> and nobody wants that apart from me because I feel we communicate better. That makes sense. Hey, I mean, you've, you've, you've seen it time and time again in your own productions to know that that, that does something for you. And, and yeah, that's where people. the communication is, is, is in the whole experience. Yeah. For sure. Um, as far as creating or like dialing in your settings for vocals when you're recording, um, I'd imagine that having a singer in the same room as you can create some challenges because you're probably not monitoring through a big set of monitors. You're probably just listening on headphones. So how does that impact your decision-making process when it comes to creating or dialing in your, your settings to get the right sound? Uh, I do very little, basically. Um, so I, I'll, I'll pick a mic um, and normally sort of record it, record some stuff on like three mics, I think. One of these is going to be it, um, and then and then play that back so I can hear that properly. And then once that's chosen, um, it will be you know mic pre and and perhaps just a tiny bit of compression, but really it will just be a tiny bit. Um, and and that's it. I, I'll, I'll do as little as as little as I can get away with basically because um, because for like you say, I, I can't monitor it properly, can't monitor it that clearly. Um, and also, I don't want to be concentrating on the sound. I want to be concentrating on the performance. You know, when you're engineering and producing, um, I think engineering always goes by the wayside to producing because you know that's that's the more you know when when the two are on offer, that's the more important gig um, because you can't fix a bad performance, and sometimes you can fix a, a recording that isn't perfect. So um, yeah, so so that that's how I do, I do as little as I can. That's a really good point because I do think people tend to get very fixated on the technical side of things when they're recording because you know they're they're thinking like oh this is my one shot to get it right and to make it you know to to save myself work later on if I you know I get this perfect sound now so but you're right like it's it, at the end of the day it's like if you get the better performance that's that's really the thing that matters you'll you'll yeah, make it work the, the, no matter what yeah exactly. there's nothing that will make your mix easier than a great performance. You know, that's the thing that will make everything fall together easy and the whole thing will sound a lot better if there's a great performance. So so um yeah, that's always the thing that I would I would want to focus on, both for an engineering and a production, you know, angle. It's like the performance has got to be great. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting though, because there's always that debate of like, you know, how how much should you be committing in the recording stage? And you know, there's there's that balance there too. Now that's one where I actually stand on a I, I prefer to decide. So it's things like, you know, guitars. I had this recently with a guy who was in here and he was recording a guitar. 
and and we got a sound, we've got a couple of pedals, amp, and I've got an amp and mic'd it up and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yep, that's the sound we want. Sounds great. And he said, are you going to record a DI? I said, no. He said, oh, because normally I record a DI. I said, what? So I said, look, well, if you're not happy with the sound, we'll change it. Like, let's let's get the right sound, and then we don't need to record a DI. And then he got fixated on it, so I recorded a DI anyway, and then didn't use it because we had got the sound that we wanted. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm very much up for that kind of that that, um, and that's a process recording guitars. Like, I don't need to worry about you know it having to be on headphones and 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 not being able to hear what I'm doing. You know, and that in that scenario, I want to record the sound. And you know, with when when I record drums, you know, I'll get the mics up that I need, and I've recorded drums, and then I'm happy with the drum sound. Um, and and I guess I've been engineering for quarter of a century now so so those things are a bit more straightforward to me than you know they were 15 years ago um so so i can kind of do that with confidence and not not worry too much um but yeah i, I always try and if i can I'll, I'll commit and and decide this is what it is and then i'll work with that you know yeah it makes sense yeah and especially if you're mixing your own music that you've that you've recorded you kind of you've done it so many times you kind of already know how you're going to process it later on that you can feel pretty yeah. confident that yeah, this this is going to work for me. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, this is a this is a good guitar sound. I like this sound, and I'm sure I'll be able to make this work in the mix. This will be great. Yeah, it, it might be like would that would your approach change if someone else were mixing the songs? Nope. <laughs> Deal with it. This is my guitar sound. I like it. <laughs> mix it. Yeah, love it. <laughs> yeah. If I wanted a different guitar sound, I would have recorded a different guitar sound. Fair, yeah. <laughs> um, another thing I was curious to ask you about was that I, I heard in another interview that you'd mentioned that when it comes to your mixes, the way you tend to work is that you'll tend to uh, make the mix on one set of monitors and get it sounding great, and then you'll switch to another set of monitors, kind of reevaluate the mix, and then mm-hmm. make the changes on those, and then you'll switch to another set of monitors and kind of repeat that process over and over again yeah. until you feel like it's it's done. Um, so, so that sounds like it's your process, right? Yes. Yeah. Now. My my question with that is that every set of monitors is going to sound very different. So, mm-hmm. what do you do to ensure that your mixes are translating as opposed to just making the mix sound as best as they can on a specific set of monitors? Well, so so this is why I do it really is because I've got two different sets of speakers. I've actually got three because I've got the Aventones, which I use a little bit but not loads. Um, but I've got the NS10s, I've got Neumanns, um, the 310s, um, and I've got. Um, Grado headphones and I've got uh, Ross and Audio headphones. So I've got, I figure all four of those, they are chosen because they're sort of complementary. You know, they do sound different to each other. The, the Neumanns and the NSNs are not the same. And same with the Graders and the Rossens. They sound very different. Um, and so the translation comes by the fact that when I start flicking between them and it sounds the same, you know, the mix is sounding the same between. NSNs and Neumann sounds the same, headphones on, yeah, sounds the same. I'm not hearing any problem. It's I'm not hearing any problems for a start as part of the mixing process, but I know if it sounds basically the same as I jump between, then I'm then I'm kind of there. And and it does that does develop over the process of the mix. At the start of the mix, they'll sound very different across the different speakers. The mix will sound different. But as they get closer and closer um to the end point, they they start sounding more and more similar and the and the speakers start mattering less which ones I'm on. So um yeah, that seems to work for me. It's just, it's the fact that I think it's the fact that I use four that are chosen to be different, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think that's one of the issues that a lot of people, especially in like the home recording world, have is that they, the idea of translation, like a lot of people just don't have a good grasp on that yet. And it's not so much about making it sound great on 
one set of speakers because it's it's not not everyone's gonna listen on that one set of speakers no, so, no. yeah i think your approach to having different sounding speakers really does give you that kind of baseline of like am i hearing problems like on one set of speakers versus another and you know once yeah. you kind of once you, once everything's sounding consistent then then you know your, your mix should translate well outside of the studio probably just came to me. the reason why i probably don't use the aventones that much is because they're close to the ns10s so they're not offering me much more information than the NS10s are. You know, I'm kind of getting that from the NS10s and then I'm moving on. I'm hearing in the Avatones and going, yeah, that's what I thought. You know, whereas I'll go from NS10s to Neumann's and go, ooh, okay, got a couple of things to do in the 300 hertz area or something like that, you know, something will come out. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's, I, I do think it's one of the reasons why a lot of people do the car test as well. It's because, mm. like, they don't, most people yeah. don't have a sub in their, in their speaker, in their yeah. studio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's another set of speakers they know really well and, and they can, and it, it will be different to their studio speakers and, you know, get in there, make some notes and, and get a reference from there. Yeah. But, you know, and, and arguably anything would work that, that would be, you know, that you know reasonably well. Um, home hi fi would work. Um, yeah, and anything you know reasonably well that you can make some notes on and, and and try and get it to translate to. Yeah, I mean, we all have so many sets of speakers around us, whether it's just like the little iPhone speaker or, uh, yeah. you know, a couple of studio monitors, your laptop, whatever. Like there's there's so many different ways that we could check out our mixes. So um, I think it is important for people to to do that as opposed to just mixing it on one set of speakers and calling it a day and hoping it, hoping it works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's very optimistic there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why when you look at like pictures of mastering studios, they have tons of speakers and yeah, like hi-fi stuff and and boom boxes and all that kind of stuff. It's just like you got to make sure it works. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right on. Well, Dom, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, if people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, there's a couple of places. So dommorley.com, um, which is just my website about you know me as a mixer and all that sort of thing. Um, but also, I've, I, I run a service called the Mix Consultancy, which um, if they want to go a bit deeper with me, that might be quite useful um, in that you can upload your mixes there and I give you a load of feedback on what I would do if I were presented with this track at this moment. So, um, so yeah, if you want to sort of learn mixing with me, then then that's the place to be. Um, there's also like a blog page of it of loads of stuff that I've written either myself, for myself, or I write a lot for the, the website, the production uh, expert. Uh, or Pro Tools Expert, or whatever particular expert you go All to. All the experts. On the same page, yeah. <laughs> Logic Expert, same, same page. Um, but yeah, I, I do a lot of writing for that. So there's loads you can read on there if you want to read all my opinions on various things, or or you can upload a mix and uh, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll get your mixes better. There's also I've also done a course on um, that you can do on, on recording vocals because I'm obsessed with that. So <laughs> if you want to be as obsessed <laughs> as I am with recording vocals, you can do my course. Amazing. Right on, man. Well, thank thanks to you again for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I think uh, yeah, it gives welcome. a lot of great insight on your process, and uh, especially like you know when it comes to vocals and stuff like that. I that like I said, that, that's that's your jam there, man. Like that's that's where I felt like you you really nail it. And uh, learning more about your process with that is I found that very fascinating. So, th- so thank you. So that was my chat with Dom Morley, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really interesting to learn more about his vocal process and how simple it is for him just to get his vocals to sit properly in the mix. And all it takes is just a simple EQ move that he does at the beginning of his process that then sets himself up for success as he moves on with the rest of the mix. And it's something so simple, but a lot of us forget about that, that 
you know, when we're mixing, we're just trying to give each track its own slot within the mix. And we have to prioritize what elements are the most important. And for Dom, it's clearly the vocals. But, you know, beyond that, you know, when once you start to fit everything around the vocal, you still have to prioritize things like, should the snare be more important in a certain section or the guitars? Or should the keyboards be louder or the background vocals, that kind of thing. So you have to prioritize what the most important element of every section of the song is and then make your decisions based around that. And from there, it's going to help guide your EQ decisions to make sure that you've got everything sitting in the right slot and that you've made room for the most important element of that section of the song. So I love that approach, and I think it's an important lesson to keep in mind next time you go to mix your tracks and you're trying to get the important elements of your song to have clarity. So yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I hope that you did too. There was a lot of great stuff to take from this one. And fun fact about today's episode is that today's episode is scheduled to be released on January 18th, 2023. And as long as everything goes smoothly, that will be the date that it goes live. And this date is actually the due date of my very first baby being born. So um, if I sound tired in upcoming episodes, now you're going to understand. And I'm sure that all the parents listening to this are totally going to relate to what I'm talking about here. But this is a really fun adventure that I'm really looking forward to. And um, obviously... All the parents I know have been warning me, hey, you're not going to sleep, get ready, uh, you know, telling you all the stuff that like you got to prepare for. And I'd like to think that I can handle it. I'm a, I'm a bit of a night owl already, and I kind of function on little sleep to begin with. We'll see how things work out, but obviously it's something I'm super excited about and uh, looking forward to it. So yeah, if all goes well, then as of today's date, I will be a dad, which is weird to say. But uh, yeah, just super excited for it. Really looking forward to it. And with the birth of my baby, that doesn't mean that the podcast is going to be stopping. I've got a whole bunch of episodes in the bank. So we're going to keep releasing new episodes on schedule every week, every Wednesday. So definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. And if you're looking for even more help when it comes to creating pro sounding mixes from your home studio, definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I've got a ton of great resources to help make the process of recording and editing and mixing your music easy. And on the website, we've got some courses, we've got books, we've got coaching programs and a whole bunch more. So if you're looking for help, definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. And one resource that I would definitely recommend you start off with is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you what you should be listening for, what tools to be using, how to dial in settings, so that ultimately you can get the sound that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, guys. Really looking forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.